Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. You know, Courtney, choosing a college or university can be one of the most exciting yet challenging big steps someone can take. From receiving that first acceptance letter to your number one school or the realization that you're pretty much on your own for the first time, college is an introduction to adult life for many students. And for a lot of Black African-American students, it's the first time they'll have to deal with or encounter racism. Well, you're right, Courtney. Unfortunately, systemic racism could factor into the decision of where to go to uh, go to college. So that makes choosing a college or university even harder. It's a challenge most Black students face when it's time to make that big choice. For example, Black students often vacillate between choosing a predominantly white institution or sometimes called a PWI or choosing one where they're in higher numbers or choosing a historically Black college or university. And as many of us know, higher education can be an isolating experience for incoming freshmen. For Black students, this can be amplified by the lack of representation and the lack of diversity in their peers at PWIs. Now, uh, Idithia Siobhan Harvey, an associate professor at Texas A&M University, sought to understand the type of stressors that Black students experience Experience in higher education and how administrators can make college a welcoming space for students of color. And she said this, for students who are not a part of the majority, there is a different level of belonging when, it, when they come to campus, Harvey said. There may be not a critical mass of students who look like them or have lived their same experience in the classroom. Well, that's right, Courtney. And because of that, some believe that applications were up nearly 30 percent at many of the historically black colleges and universities between 2018 and 2021. And the top tier HBCUs are increasingly becoming the first choice for some of the country's most sought after students. And that's because uh, there's been that racial unrest incidents of violence and mistreatment and general race-based hostility in America that's been going on lately. So high school graduates are choosing HBCUs in record numbers. When they're asked why, most of them say it's because they want to be somewhere they are safe, appreciated, and respected. So Choosing a PWI certainly is a risk that someone would take, and I can understand why a student would look to an HBCU to stay safe. And you're seeing that a lot with top sports draft picks that are going to HBCUs. A lot of them are saying, you know, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to go to an HBCU. You definitely see that at Jackson State, where Deion Sanders is coaching their football program. But the website HBCU First goes even further and states that historically Black colleges and universities 
universities consistently outperform other uh, non-HBCUs. Student experience, the HBCUs provide students something they can't get anywhere else. It's diverse and inclusive, but it also celebrates the richness of the entire American experience. Um, HBCUs have been around for over 180 plus years, and they're driven by a visceral promise to support all students. HBCUs offer safe and nurturing environments to everyone, not just Black students, white students, Asian students, and Latin students, as well as wealthy and less advantaged students, all in between. HBCUs are lower cost, and they offer a lot more in the way of college, after college preparedness. Studies show that HBCU graduates are generally better prepared for life beyond college and more engaged at work than non-HBCU students. And additionally, Black HBCU students are more likely to be thriving in their purpose and financial well-being than not HBCU students. And that goes back to the affordability. And the founder of the site, Courtney Gray, states this, the evidence is clear. HBCUs provide a better experience for Black students academically and socially. But going to an HBCU, and Carol, isn't always a good fit or a possibility for some African-American students. So what are some of the challenges those students are facing at PWIs when that may be their only choice? Well, you're exactly right, Courtney. HBCUs could be a good choice for some students, but that's true also for predominantly white institutions. Those schools, PWIs, are places where students can grow and develop just as well as they could at an HBCU or a school that has higher numbers of Black students. But there is a catch. A study was done that shows that predominantly white institutions, unfortunately, are still failing to meet their promises in delivering diversity on campus or in ensuring that the voices of minority students are heard or even uh, providing the adequate support to meet the, the needs of those students over the four years that they are there. So choosing a predominantly white school is not a problem uh, for some students, as long as those predominantly white institutions are taking the necessary steps to ensure that they feel welcome, that they're going to get a good education, and that they are not going to be subject to systemic racism. Now, there was an article in 2021 for the online newspaper, The Hawk, that discusses what's called Black a burnout, Black college student burnout, especially at PWIs, and explains that the racism that surrounds PWIs is notorious. Unfortunately, it's well known. The experiences that Black students face with both subtle and explicit racism is downright appalling, and it's kind of common. The understanding of that prejudice is exhausting. So already going into a new space and you know, being confronted overtly or covertly with racism can cause burnout. Some campuses are not safe spaces, the article goes on to say, and there's a sense of hyper-awareness that comes with that realization. So on top of everything else you're dealing with, with college and loans and classes and being on your own, a lot of African-American students have this hyper-awareness of 
what's going to happen is some, and no one should have to deal with that, but that just comes along with it. So not only do these students, like I said, have to deal with the burden of racism, they're also expected to single-handedly fight against it. So they're like a one-man army. And we'll see in today's story that a lot of times, a lot of the students are one-man army. Wow, Court. Well, given that angst that's associated with choosing a college, it looks like choosing a predominantly white institution or PWI is actually fraught with those additional stressors and even the possibility of physical and mental harm. And I think you have some stories about just these kinds of stressors that Black students have endured at PWIs. I do, Aunt Carol. And this week's story, the beginning story starts in 1919. So over a hundred years ago. And our listeners who I've dubbed our many historians will know that 1919 is the year of Red Summer. But this story involves Samuel and Roger Courtney, two brothers who attended the University of Maine, in Maine, of course, in Bangor, Maine. And they were the victims of a very terrifying hazing act. But before we get into that terrifying act, let's give a little background about the Courtney brothers because they were a big deal. Now, these brothers were smart, they were rich, they were handsome, and they were excellent athletes. And they came from a very prominent Black family in Boston. And the brothers were big men on campus. They were popular with the women, which we've learned from a lot of stories, both on the podcast and off. For Black men, especially in those times, that could be a death sentence, especially if they were involved in interracial relationships. And when people saw African-Americans rise above their so-called station, that also gave way to jealousy. And that's what happened with the Courtney brothers. They were enviable gentlemen on campus. So it's not hard to imagine why in that time that some white students may have harbored some anger and resentment towards them. And one account, news account states that the white students perceived the Courtney brothers as domineering and ill-tempered. That's convenient. (laughs) Very convenient. And it's something that a lot of times we hear oh, they, about Black students, oh, they have a bad attitude, they're, they're, they do too much. And it's really not that you just aren't used to seeing someone walk in, I will say, their Blackness and their truth without kowtowing, and they didn't like that. Now, their father, Samuel Courtney Sr., was born into slavery, but graduated from Harvard University and became a prominent Boston physician. And he was very good friends with Booker T. Washington. Samuel Courtney Sr. believed the best way to achieve Black empowerment was through business development and entrepreneurship. Um, Courtney Sr. and Booker T. Washington founded and began operating the National Negro Business League out of the Courtney's home. So the brothers have been used to being around prominent, successful Black people their entire lives. And Samuel uh, Courtney Sr. was also very active in Republican politics and became the first Black resident to serve on the Boston School Committee. And he spoke out against the showing of Birth of a Nation at the White House. So the Courtney brothers, they they knew that they were all that. And coming into school, I'm sure their peers didn't like that they knew that they were all that. And I'm sure that those guys that do this act that I described wanted to take them down a peg. 
So imagine it. It's still a chilly, chilly day in Maine. It's a chilly morning in April. And the University of the Maine campus where Roger and Samuel Courtney um, are staying. Now they're startled awake at the sounds of college freshmen trying to break into their dorm room of Hannibal Hamblin Hall on the Orono campus of the University of Maine. The goal was to drag the brothers outside to 60 waiting white male students who wanted to haze the brothers. So this is not forebode well, so how does this proceed? Now the accounts of what happened vary, but as always, our favorite black historical newspaper, the Chicago Defender, was able to get a report of the incident as follows. The Courtney brothers refused to be taken or manhandled by the freshmen who were trying to break into their room and knocked three of them out cold. There you go. There you go. Don't mess with the Courtney brothers. Don't mess with the Courtney brothers. And they were able to escape down a rope ladder out of their window and run towards town. Now, once the waiting mob outside found out that Samuel and Roger had escaped, not only escaped, but knocked out three of the students that had been sent to apprehend him. The group was quickly thrown into a rage and it swelled from 60 students to over 100 men of all classes and stations and even a faculty member. So Mm. at this point, it wasn't even students trying to like haze if it was like a fraternity or whatever. It wasn't that. That throws that out the water because they had just random townspeople and a college professor in on that. So it's going past college hazing at this point. So the hunt for the Courtney brothers begins because they have run off into this cold April morning trying to scramble to get to safety. In one account, the mob that had swelled from the 60 students to the 100 grown men broke into search parties in the Bangor area to find them. And when we come back, we will find out what happened to the Courtney brothers and if they were able to hold off the mob of the maniacal Mainers that that were hunting them down. Courtney, those brothers must have been terrified to see that mob. I mean, they were they had their wits about them to knock out the the folks that were sent for them. But they probably I mean, I'm sure they knew they couldn't handle an entire mob. And the fact that they were black and in a predominantly white space probably made it ultra terrifying. So let's take a break while we hold our collective breath and find out after the break what happened to the Courtney brothers. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Well, okie dokie. We are back. And the Courtney brothers, when we left, were in a pretty precarious position. And Courtney, in all honesty, I tell you, it doesn't sound good, but I hope things didn't get worse for them. Well, we shall see, Kara. When we left off, the Courtney brothers had managed to escape this mob of supposed hazers and run off to the nearest town for help. Unfortunately, no help would be found. The mob eventually found them four miles away in a town called Old Town. Once they were found, the white students and their cohorts, which included 
included a college professor. Let us not forget that. Placed horse halters around the men's necks like nooses and led them back to campus for what was, what was being called the biggest hazing party ever held at the university. Now, a few bystanders did try to stop what was going on, but to no avail, mob rule had taken over. They had led the brothers to the campus stock judging pavilion, now known as the Cyrus Pavilion Theater, where a ring was formed around the brothers, preventing them to escape or for anyone uh, to help them or for the brothers to put their hands on somebody and knock them out again. It was then that a large vat of molasses was boiled down to the consistency of tar. Knowing possibly what was gonna happen, the brothers then insisted that, hey guys, you know, the only reason we fought you guys off was because you were breaking into our room. This was self-defense, like, please don't do anything crazy. The brothers' heads were forcibly shaved. They were forced to strip off all of their clothes in front of all of these people and slather themselves in hot molasses. Now, tarring and feathering goes back to the revolutionary days, and it's normally not fatal, but it's burning you, and to get the icky stuff off of you, it that can even cause irritation to your skin on top of their heads being shaved and being totally naked. After they were, you know, stood shivering in the cold air naked in front of strangers, pretty much, they were covered in feathers and compelled to pose for photographs to document their humiliation and the pictures still exist there will be a link in the show notes to a smithsonian article that will show the pictures of samuel jr and roger courtney naked in front of a group of men on a cold april morning covered in feathers and molasses disgusting just disgusting but i guess we have to understand that in a situation like that those two young men two accomplished young men in a predominantly white situation were unfortunately they were going to end up the victims pretty much as one reporter noted the feeling ran so high um, that it was fortunate there was no more serious casualties than bruises and scalp wounds but Who's not talking about the mental or emotional? Like that's horrible to be stripped naked and put burning. Like that's it. Uh, that re- guy was not thinking. No, he was lessening. He was minimizing the uh, horror. This was terrorism. That's all it was. It was just out out and out terrorism. And in a court, and of course, in a case of too little, too late, the Bangor police and local sheriff showed up just as the students were leaving and made no attempt to arrest anyone. The New York Herald reported that the Courtney's intended to file a criminal complaint against the ringleaders of the hazing party, but it's not known if one was ever submitted or if it was submitted, anything was done. The Herald also reported that the university and local authorities made extraordinary efforts to keep the hazing from regular newspapers. But eventually the University of Maine president, Robert J. Ailey was forced to issue a formal statement. And this statement echoes in the next stories that I will tell about current events. Ailey, the student, uh, the university president claimed that the university welcomed black students and denied that the incident was racially motivated at all. He said that the white freshmen were retaliating against the brothers for an earlier hazing incident that there is no record of, by the way, an earlier hazing incident that they had done to them. 
And the brothers also had previously been asked to leave campus for violating university rules. So in his mind, hey, they should be happy that we had let them stay. Now, he also added that the school did not condone the affair of this kind of hazing, but it was likely to happen at any college. Well, the, and here's the problem I have, Courtney. This is typical of systemic racism. Remember our definition, it's policies, practices, and procedures that disadvantage one race over another. And so here we have the college president who refuses to uh, step up and enact any kind of punishment toward uh, these people who have done this heinous act. And that to me, again, is systemic racism. There should have been policies in place against this. I don't care if it's a college prank. It's beyond a college prank at this point. Those boys could have been uh, harmed. Well, they were harmed irreparably. They could have been killed. Exactly. Now, some news outlets at the time described the incident as a race riot and the Orono uh, main residents, including a clergyman, told a reporter the elements of race and religious war are discernible in this and other disturbances at the university. Now, in the wake of the incident, at least one of the Courtney brothers was expelled. Okay, so, so the, the, <laughs> the person who had the harm done gets kicked out, typical. And according to one newspaper, neither returned to the University of Maine. So one was expelled and probably the one that was knocking people out and the other one just left. Now, none of the leaders of the white mob faced any consequences. Now, like this story and so many others about Black history and Black terror would have gone unknown if it wasn't for historian Karen Cyber, who was doing research on Red Summer and stumbled on the story and fell down a rabbit hole. And that happens to me and you a lot with these stories. You're looking for one thing and it's like, can it get any worse? And of course it does. Now she was just as frustrated that there wasn't more information on the story. But with a lot of these stories, the only newspapers that covered them were Black publications. And they did. They were covered, of course, by the Chicago Defender. Um, I'm going to take a limb out and say probably the Pittsburgh uh, uh, newspaper that we cover as well. But that's the only people who cared about what happened to the Courtney brothers. Now, local media like Bangor Daily and the campus newspaper did nothing to report the, the event at all. And a search of databases that were populated with millions of pages of historic newspapers only yielded six news accounts of what happened to the Courtney brothers. Most were published in the greater Boston area because you remember their family were very, very prominent or in the black press. Now, while most of white America was unaware of the attack, like I said, many black Americans read about it in the Chicago Defender, which was the most uh, distributed black newspaper at the time. Now, anyone with a firsthand memory of the incident has long passed on. Samuel Courtney passed away in 1929 with no descendants. Roger, who worked in real estate investment, died a year later, leaving a pregnant wife and a toddler behind. Their obituaries for both men were very brief and provided no details about their death. So sadly, these men, like a lot of students, Black students that suffer these type of, you know, things at school, just suffered, left school, didn't talk about it, and moved on with their lives. Well, in Carol, unfortunately, these incidents uh, that happened to the Courtney brothers are not rare, and they look seem to be getting worse in modern times. 99 years after what happened to 
Roger and Samuel Courtney. In 2018, Yukai Yang, 22, allegedly poisoned his Lehigh roommate, Lehigh University roommate, Jawan Royal, who was also 22, whose blood tested positive for the chemical thallium after he reported becoming increasingly sick. Yang, a chemistry major, gained access to the toxic chemical that is colorless, odorless, and tasteless and began putting it in, allegedly putting it in uh, Royal's water. Now, in May 2018, Yang was charged with ethnic intimidation, institutional vandalism, and criminal mischief after he scrawled the N-word on the desk in the room that he shared with Royal. Oh my goodness. And okay. So he's charged with these things. I, I wonder if like the mob, he kind of slipped through with very little punishment. Yeah. And the poisoning kind of went by. So I'm definitely going to do some research on that. And hopefully if we do a wrap up episode, I can get some more information, but he was charged with just the criminal mischief and the vandalism, but also, and this is a famous story as well. I think a lot of our listeners may have heard about Taylor Dumpson. In 2018, she was a student at American University and the university's first Black female student government president, but she became the target of racist attacks when her information was leaked on a racist website called the Daily Stormer by another student on her campus. Um, She started finding bananas hung with nooses. Um, Some of them said Harambe bait. Some of them said other things that are worse. And eventually she was able to sue and win damages in her case. But she said she was left traumatized, scared to go anywhere because her information was all over the internet and people were even attacking her on social media. I tell you, it just gets worse and worse. You would think by the 2018 year, 100 years after the Courtney brothers, things would improve, but it sounds like it's just as bad. Now, one of the most disturbing cases in recent years, Ankyro, it happened in 2017, happened to Chanel Rowe. And I remember this happening. I followed it in real time because at the time I was preparing to move to Connecticut where this happened and it kind of shook me. Now, Chanel was systematically attacked by her white roommate, Brianna Brochu, at the University of Hartford in Hartford, Connecticut. Brianna, who called Chanel Jamaican Barbie, bragged online on Instagram this, and I quote, after one and a half months of spitting in her coconut oil, putting moldy clam dip in her lotion, rubbing used tampons on her backpack and putting her toothbrush in places where the sun doesn't shine. I'm so, I, in so much more, I can finally say goodbye to Jamaican Barbie. Oh, how disgusting. I mean, that's, it's inhumane. I can't even imagine somebody doing those kinds of things, but I guess she did. And my thing is this, I am cool, comma, collected at my 40 years of age, but I remember me in college and there would have been some furniture moving going on if I was that girl's roommate and I figured that out. But Mm. Chanel was a lot more classier than I. It wasn't until Ms. Rowe got cripplingly sick. And when I say sick, it was so bad. She could not go to sleep. Her throat was inflamed. Um, it was it was totally disgusting um, that she was informed by the post that her roommate was making about her. And I'm giving the side eye to everybody in that dorm room that saw those posts. You waited till that girl was almost on her deathbed to say, hey, your crazy psycho roommate is making these disgusting posts about you. But 
I digress. Now, it wasn't until um, Chanel got that information from the people in her dorm about what Brianna was posting online that she put two and two together, her roommate being weird and her getting sick. And I remember this happening in real time. I remember Justice for Chanel being trended all over social media and diving into the story. Now, Chanel made her own Facebook post about the incident, not only putting her roommate, but the school on blast for not acting quickly enough to resolve her issue. She said that the school authorities had told her if she spoke about the situation, she could be removed from her campus residence. Excuse me, this nasty girl is doing all this stuff and you're threatening me, the victim? Again, here we have the problem. The person who's being victimized is in turn being threatened to be kicked out of school. I, I, I'm not getting it, but I'm getting it. It all goes back to the Courtney brothers. It all goes back to the Courtney brothers. Now, Chanel said she thinks that if race, if her race was different, if she was a white and her roommate was black doing these things, that the investigation would have been more urgent. Now, in the end, uh, this just makes me even matter. In the end, Brianna Brochu, she was expelled from school, but she was only given accelerated probation for hmm. these terroristic acts. She could have killed Chanel doing that gross and nasty stuff. And you can follow the story online. You can look at both girls' responses. I wasn't going to really give any shine to the stupid responses that Brianna was saying that it was because they didn't get along or this and that. I'm not going to give that any credence. All she got was accelerated probation. And the reason why is because the judge and the attorneys didn't want to ruin her young life because she made a mistake. Oh, what a mistake. You almost kill someone and you don't want to ruin their life. It's despicable. But, you know, sadly, we'd like to think incidents that happened to the Courtney, uh, you know, those Courtney brothers are well in the past. But these incidents that you've just described, uh, Courtney, uh, only a few years ago proved that cruel and racially motivated acts are still happening. Now, I contend that because of systemic racism that exists on some uh, predominantly white institution campuses, these types of behaviors can be tolerated because we see the reaction of the administration to the issues. They uh, blame the victim. They give very light uh, punishments to the people who have done the crimes. In essence, they don't validate or uh, in any way Uh, allow for the fact that these Black students have been harmed. And it's just, it's just unconscionable to see this. And the responses are pretty much the same. Like I said, from the Courtney brothers to today, almost. It's, and you can read, there were so many articles and Carol, I just picked those out because I was familiar with those stories, but it was article after article after article of severe situations where African-American students are targeted and attacked. And the response is pretty much the same from the college officials. They tend to shy away from the fact that these attacks are racially motivated, but it's as plain as the nose on your face. There's no other, you don't see a lot of these articles saying roommate attack roommate and put racial slur or put something unless it's a roommate of color. So as much as things change, they haven't changed at all. 
you know, it's just crazy. What happened to just asking to be changed out of your room to move to another room? Instead, you try to murder somebody by poisoning them with nasty, nasty things in there on their personal items. And I say the fact that institutions don't act to mitigate these types of of incidents is proof that they are operating within the realm of systemic racism. Clearly, they have the power to enact policies and procedures to protect Black students, but they choose not to do so. They choose not to be proactive. Um, I read an article in the University of South Carolina newspaper, The Gamecock, that said Black African-American college students who attend predominantly white institutions of higher education regularly encounter subtle and explicit forms of racial discrimination on campuses. And another writer concluded that, quote, racial discrimination in the form of racial microaggressions, inequitable treatment by faculty and staff, and course content that excludes college uh, or excludes knowledge produced by Black Americans all contribute to a campus climate in which Black students feel socially isolated, invisible, and invalidated. And with already being far from home for the first time for a lot of students, that just adds so much stress. Just being alone and feeling alone and wanting to call your parents, but also wanting them to be proud of you because you're on your own and not wanting to make a big deal. I'm sure there are students out there that are like, you know what, if I just get through it, I can get to next semester and put in, you know, another request, or maybe I'm imagining it. But if you're getting it from your roommate, if you're getting it from social situations, and only to go to class and not even, you know, feel validated there, that has got to be a pressure that is almost unbearable. Well, yeah, my dear niece, you brought up another pressure that is great for many uh, students who attend predominantly white colleges or universities. Uh, And it's that pressure of being able to compete and stay in the game, even if you're not threatened, even if you don't have these horrible incidents happening to you, there is another kind of stressor on uh, Black students and PWIs. For example, the group Think Progress reported that Black students in higher education settings have to contend with assumptions about their competence. And uh, they, they uh, really have difficulty sometimes convincing people they belong at a college or university, one of the PWIs. For example, it's even harder for them to find mentors. Studies have found that when students contacted professors for mentorship, faculty were significantly more responsive to white men than to women and definitely to black students. And that's where that, you know, that's intersectionality. If they're not leaning into women and people of color, and we also know that racism and sexism, that's intersectionality. But not finding a mentor in college could be a barrier um, for getting the most out of college. So these kids are isolated on every turn. And I don't want people to think that Black people are always sitting around saying, I'm scared to go everywhere. everywhere. We know what's what's happening. But just for those of our listeners who have been to college, me, you, a lot of our listeners, just remember just that feeling of kind of floating in an ocean. For a lot of Black students, they're floating without even a lifeboat or a boat to cling to if they can't find a mentor. 
But are there way other barriers that these students are facing, eh, Carol? Right, Courtney. Besides not being able to get mentors, there are many well-documented barriers for Black students attending PWIs. Casey Quinlan writes that Black students have to contend with the Eurocentric teaching focus that usually is at PWIs. Now, there's often a dearth of Black professors at those schools. And so Black students and other students of color say that their point of view isn't represented because Western culture is considered the default standard by which all literature, architecture, film, and art is judged. And this kind of bias frames European topics as, quote, normal and all other areas of the world as other. So once again, even more isolation because everyone likes to see themselves in the materials that they're studying. So it seems like an obvious area that PWIs could address, but are there even more, we know there are more, but what are some other issues that Black students at PWIs are facing? Well, another barrier is that they're often targeted by campus police. Um, Uh. Yeah, even, I mean, they can't even get some peace off at colleges or universities. The number of officers at universities has gone up in the past decade. And not only has the number gone up, but the number of armed officers have gone up. And Courtney, not only are officers carrying guns on campuses, but there have been many records of these same officers unnecessarily criminalizing small infractions that Black students commit. For example, a Black college student who attended Hines Community College in Mississippi was stopped by a campus police officer who said, get this, his pants violated the college dress code. Now, when the student refused to show his ID, he was arrested for a failure to comply. Yet, after the incident was investigated, the college said, that student had not violated the dress code. And it sounds like the campus police are just like the city and state police, harassing Black students, harassing Black people. He could have kept that to himself. Absolutely. Absolutely, Courtney. You are right. Now, not only has there been, uh, are there these barriers that I've talked about that Black students encounter on PWIs, but they often, as we have said before, don't receive support from the administration. So this lack of administration response to racist incidents, you know, racially motivated incidents, much like the over-policing and uh, harassing that students experience on these campuses, a lot of those incidents have actually caused students at the PWIs to mobilize and protest. Here's an example. The former president of the University of Missouri uh, was accused of failing to act after a string of racist behavior toward Black students on campus. There was an incident where a Black Student Association president was harassed by men in a pickup truck who drove by yelling a racial slur. Also, a white male student called a Black student a racial slur during a rehearsal of a school play. And at that same college, someone drew a swastika with feces in one oh, of the colleges. I know, just just nasty. <laughs> just oh, anyway, they're right up with that girl from Connecticut. Well, right up in there. Now the president actually resigned after widespread student protests called for him to step down. 
I tell you, uh, it, it's just a shame. But students on other campuses have had similar complaints leading to other administrators agreeing to resign their positions. But there is still a widespread sense that college administrators aren't sensitive to the concerns of students of color and they don't speak up and, uh, you know, take this on through policy practices and procedures to overcome these problems. Uh, for example, at Yale University, students of color have, have submitted a list of demands for the administration after reports of racist, be, uh, racist behavior from their peers. And the president basically defended some of the incidents that students were upset about. Oh, wow. But this goes across the, the gamut, because remember when Katanji Brown Jackson, who is now the first Black uh, Supreme, female Black Supreme Court justice, she talked about going to Harvard and feeling so alone. And another person who testified on her behalf during uh, when she was going to become the Supreme Court justice even said if it wasn't for finding Katanji Brown Jackson, they both felt so isolated. So even at the top, top universities that when people hear Yale, they hear Harvard, these people have earned their way into the cream of the crop universities and they're still dealing with this racism on all levels. But are there any steps that PWIs can do to overcome these barriers? Because we don't all just want to talk about the problems. We want to give some solutions to incoming freshmen and people who want to continue their education. So what can PWIs do on their campuses to open them up so that Black students feel accepted and wanted? Well, Courtney, there is a lot they can do. First and foremost, uh, they need to check their policies, procedures, and practices to determine if they are uh, actually fomenting and upholding uh, racism at their universities. Also, Donald Brown, who is a diversity con uh, consultant who works with PWIs, says that they won't have, uh, these PWIs really won't have a problem finding qualified and committed students who want to enroll, but they have to do a lot of things. They need to make sure these kids can get financial aid. They need to create an environment that shows the institution is welcoming and inclusive, and they need to show that they are committed to diversity. Uh, he also says that predominantly white institutions need to focus on recruiting black and brown students. And once they are enrolled, they need to work on uh, doing all the steps they have to do to retain these students, because once they get there, uh, that's one thing. Being willing to stay is another. And if the policies, practices and procedures don't make sure that that happens, black students will exit or they'll stay quietly uh, unhappy. And then later on, they might even go on to badmouth their, their university or their college. So what's the win? Of course, we know the win, but what's the win for PWIs that take that initiative? Because a lot of people feel like if they do these things, well, they just want Black faces in the brochure, or they just want to add to their diversity numbers. But there is a win for these uh universities and colleges to accept black students. So why bother? What's the win for them? 
Well, the win is just simply enough. All their students, not just Black students, all their students will receive a better quality of cross-group interaction, as well as enhanced classroom discussions and better personal growth. There'll be people, students uh, who will go out into the world better prepared for the world that they're going to be in. Ultimately, the, the uh, predominantly white institution will contribute to stronger communities and workplaces, a healthy society, and they'll help to uh, ensure that America as a whole is economically competitive. They really, the idea of a college or university is to prepare people for the future, and the future is not predominantly white. The future is diverse. And so it is incumbent upon them to do the work, to get their students ready to work and to be successful in a diverse uh, environment. But Courtney, until PWIs do what I call a presto change makeover to become inclusive to Black students, unfortunately, it still seems to fall too on the shoulders of the Black students who want to hang in there to um, be able to navigate through a PWI. So what are some tips you could give some of those Black students if they choose to go to a predominantly white institution? Well, it's crazy to think, Aunt Carol, that Black students have to come up with some sort of survival guide to navigate life at a PWI, but we've shown that things could go real left. So we want to provide exactly that. And we're going to be using the survival guide put together by Kayla Johnson of Bradley University. Um, she wrote an article for the website Study Breaks, and she gives these tips for survival for Black students at a PWI. Number one, don't let anyone tell you or make you feel like you don't belong at the school you're attending or planning to attend. So that speaks to the isolation. Students, you belong there. You've earned it either, you know, through grades, scholarship. However, you belong at that school and don't let anyone tell you any different. Number two, find strength in each other. Uh, I know schools have Black student unions. I know a lot of students go to um, the Divide Nine, which are sororities and fraternities, but get out there and find other Black students and make your own group of, of friends to find strength in each other and to share the load. Number three, you are not a sellout for picking the school of your choice, even as a, if it's a PWI. I know we were very heavy on the HBCU at the beginning of the podcast because we love HBCUs and we want them to shine. But if you're a student who decides, hey, that's not for me, that's okay. You're not wrong. You're not a sellout for picking a PWI. We just want you to be healthy, happy, and safe and get that degree. Number four, use your voice and be the start of something bigger. If you see something, say something. In that collective group or your organizations that you find, if you guys start to notice something that's a little off or you look in the student handbook or you see something going on, Put those minds together and become a voice for change at your school, not just for you and your student body, but for Black students to come. Number five, don't forget who you are and where you come from. We stated before, this is the first time that you're on your own. I went crazy freshman year, much to my parents' chagrin, but don't forget who you are. Don't let people change you. Don't back down. Don't be afraid to speak up and don't be ashamed of where you're from. When people start to question, hey, are you here on a sports scholarship or how did you get in here? It doesn't matter. You're there and you belong there. 
Number six, don't change to fit in. If you're a nerd, stay a nerd. If you're a sports person, stay a sports person. Of course, we want you to diversify your interests, but don't change to become somebody you're not just to fit in. You're great just the way you are. Number seven, you're not the voice of your population. And I had to learn this. I'm not the voice of all Black people and students going to PWIs, neither are you. You're not Martin Luther King. You're not Malcolm X. You're not Ida B. Wells. You may take on their spirit, but you're not them. You do not have to answer every single question about racism or why Black people are like this or what they're doing or what about that. You don't have to do that. You're there for you to get your experience and your education. And number eight, which is something that I should have done, go to class, study, do your homework, have fun and prosper. You are destined for greatness wherever you decide to go to school. We're proud of you on the podcast. Your parents are proud of you. And many generations of ancestors who could not go to these schools are proud of you as well. So do your best and get through college the best way you know how. Well, Courtney, those are all good suggestions, my dear, dear niece. But you know what? I hope one day Black students won't need a survival guide for PWIs or have to make any special adjustments in order to feel safe and accepted. My hope is that they'll go to school and do exactly what you said, have fun, study, get a good education, and look back on those years as some of the best they've ever had. I agree. Well, that brings our episode to a close. I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope you share some of these tips with any future college students um, as we're in back to school time that you may know. And on your way driving to campus and moving in, feel free to listen to the podcast via our website or find us on social media at www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time where we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.